Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 317th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world this week from our studio in Hollywood, California. Of course, this is Thanksgiving week in the US, and I think this is just about everyone's most popular holiday. Something like 60 million Americans are traveling this week. 60 million, that's a hell of a lot. Um, My wife's away in Australia. So I'm having Thanksgiving with my partners at Countdown Motion Pictures, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Last week, I interviewed the world's greatest art forger, if you listened last week. It was an extraordinary interview. Um, And he's now out of jail after forging some 3,000 pieces of art and sculpture. Robert Dreesen, he's an extraordinary artist. And after the sale of the Rembrandt Salvatore Mundi, Painting last week for a record 450 million bucks. Robert sent me an email telling me it was fake. (laughs) My question is, how does he know it's fake? Was Robert commissioned by the Russian oligarch to forge the Da Vinci? The Rembrandt, I mean. Well, he isn't saying. Um, Interestingly, when you listen to what uh, Christie's had to say, They say that the um, Rembrandt Salvatore Mundi belonged to three kings of England and then it went missing for a couple of hundred years and ended up in the hands of a Russian oligarch. Now, before he went to jail, Robert Dreesen used to make his living forging masters. And a hell of a lot of those masters, according to Robert, were sold at both Christie's and Sotheby's. So there you are. He says it's a fake. However, there's actually now great value in having a genuine Robert Dreesen forgery in your collection. I guess it's a bit like Banksy in England who began as a graffiti artist and now his um, art collects high six figures. It's really amazing. Anyway, so having a Robert Dreesen genuine forgery (laughs) in your collection has value. So stay tuned. We're going to have more information about this in the next couple of weeks. An interesting story about a company called Rocket Internet, which is part startup factory, part venture capital firm, the um, business strategies to fund startups, then grow them at lightning speed. Founded in 2007 by three German brothers, Mark Oliver and Alexander Samwa, their portfolio companies now employ more than 30,000 people and they have a market cap somewhere north of $3 billion. So how do you take a company, starting with absolutely no money whatsoever, 
and build a business that employs 30,000 people with a $3 billion market cap in just in less than 10 years. Now, they're really famous for their aggressive growth tactics. They take businesses from ideas to billions of dollars in revenue in under three years. It's due in part to their cutthroat hiring practices, a team of ex-bankers and the funding they raise for each venture. They don't care about being original. They only care about execution. Now, they started City Deals in 2010 and sold it to Groupon for $170 million just five months later. So they made $170 million bucks in five months. And their key is they hire the most insecure and biggest overachievers. And these are the types of people that come from Goldman's and other consultant firms. And their pedigree makes it easier to raise money. Investors respected them because they had the same background or a similar background. So what they did was they found hungry people, taught them what worked and what didn't. The picking process, process, which is where they figured out which businesses they would accept, was not at all sophisticated. The barrier to entry was capital and execution. And once they picked which idea they wanted to do, the next step was all about growth. It was growth at all costs. They used three levers. Expand geography where the service or product is located. Create a larger product offering and lower the price to undercut any competitor. So after they picked the levers, it was time to grow. The first six months aim is 100% week over week growth. So next week, you've got to be twice as big as you are this week. And the week after that, you've got to be twice as big as that. That is a hell of a schedule to try and maintain. Then after they hit 1 million in revenue, it's 20% growth every month. That's also a huge growth rate. They built billion-dollar companies in 36 months. They determined that they would dominate the market, then aim to grow revenue 20% month over month. Now, profit didn't matter. They just needed to stay under a certain monthly burn rate, so they kept some money in the bank. Then they would sell the company and let the buyer figure out how to make it profitable. Not a bad little philosophy. Every company was given one KPI to hit. They would hold weekly group meetings on the phone where they would ask all the CEOs to tell them their weekly numbers and growth. If they didn't hit their numbers or didn't know them, they would be bashed. Churn was ridiculous. Top management was coming and going like flies. It takes a very certain performance-driven character to stay under those circumstances. Underperformers got fired immediately. I knew a, uh, a car sales group, a big car sales group, that had, I don't know, 30 or 40 sales car salespeople, and the worst-performing sales guy every month got fired. Now, you might have set a fantastic record, but if you were the last one on the chain for that month, you were gone. And it worked. They sold one shed load of cars. And each project they took on would keep going until they couldn't raise any more money. 
The only point of the companies was to make lots of revenue, raise lots of money, and then sell it or go public. The revenue growth, the more revenue growth they got, meant they could raise more money and then more money. It's all about raising money. Profit didn't matter. So very interesting. A way to build a massive company in a very short time frame, burn a lot of staff, but if you are making billions of dollars, I guess it doesn't matter. Well, to you anyway. Now, we've spoken a lot on this program about the incredible influence that blockchain will have on business. And today, I've got a great application for music artists. We spent a lot of time yesterday with pop artist Shalita Burke, who is unbelievably smart and is an even better singer. I mean, this bird is great. And she uses data science and blockchain to not only make money, but also to exponentially drive her support base. We know a lot of struggling actors, singers and musicians in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And I thought that this path was absolutely a breakthrough way for talent to survive. Now, not only is Shalita a great talent, but she's a really nice person who really wants to help people, and she gives her time very generously. She definitely doesn't leave anything to chance. She entrusts her career to science as a data science and cryptologist, and she, when she left college, she went to Microsoft, where she had a very cool job, the um, title of which escapes me for a minute, but it was very cool. And she's got a very deliberate scientific approach to reaching fans. And she likens releasing and promoting her music to running a small business. And when she was um, younger, Shalita saw the opportunity that the internet could eventually provide to, internet, to uh, independent artists. Now, she um, started programming when she was eight, and after graduating from the Northwest College of Art and Design, aha, uh -huh, I remember now, she went on to become a senior data engineer at Microsoft while she was out there playing gigs at night. And she left Microsoft a few years ago to pursue music full-time. Now, she's grown her tribe of followers to about 300,000 on Twitter. Now, that's on par with, and in some cases, much higher than many artists who have had multiple songs on the Billboard Hot 100. Shalita's single there surpassed one million plays in 24 hours. How fucking good is that? Much of this is not only due to a great voice and interpretation, also has something to do with the use of data. She really believes that every artist needs to understand data because then you can um, know your audience, who they are, what they like, and how to give them what they want. Data is the solution to understand how to be, build a much bigger audience. Another problem for artists and one that I hear all the time from lots of the musicians and singers that I know is the problem of getting paid 
and getting paid in any sort of reasonable time. A lot of times royalties don't pay out for six months or more. On top of that, music metadata, that's the data that credits the producers, writers and performers of a song, can be messy at best as there is no one centralised authority where accurate data is stored. So along came comes Shalita, who for the re- recent release of her album Special, she decided to use blockchain technology to sort it out herself. In the case of music metadata, it's a way to automatically link a song to the people who worked on it. Shalita made her music available via Bitcoin. So payments were then automatically sent to all the producers and writers who worked on the song using an Ethereum smart contract, and they got their money within minutes. No waiting for three months or six months or a year. Within minutes. How cool is that for a performer who's... You know, most performers are sort of living hand-to-mouth and it's, it's hard to get ahead unless you're really big. So while Shalita doesn't think that blockchain is the only solution for royalties payment, she says it's a step in the right direction and it's a direction that other artists should consider taking. Shalita says that people have always looked to artists as basically the way of the future, as influencers. So it's up to artists to use technology in new ways and show that they are influencers. Now, this girl's a dynamo and a really smart one at that, and she is just getting started. I'm interviewing Shalita on the show in a couple of weeks, and I'm also preparing a newsletter about this music technology pioneer, so watch out for those. The newsletter, I hope, will be out next week. And hopefully Shalita will be on the radio program the following week. As you can see, I'm really impressed with this girl. Now, let's get down to some serious business here. Do you get my 30-second read daily business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers, and it takes just 30 seconds to read it. Well, sometimes it takes a minute. Occasionally, it might take two minutes, but it's not long. And every day, we tackle a different subject. We'll talk about advances in medicine to new apps, to new technology, to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, and a whole bunch more. It is 100% totally, absolutely free. Nada. Zip. And the information that you get is absolutely invaluable. It's gratifying to see, for me, it's really gratifying to see all the tremendous response we get and the number of companies that enrol all of their senior staff as an education tool. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Now, if you don't get my daily newsletter, my 30-second read, go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com and enrol. It'll take a couple of days, but then you'll start receiving it. We do not give out our email list to anyone at all. We do not solicit you for anything at all. So 
it's purely a service to um, get my name out there. And I must admit, I get a number of speeches and consulting work from the radio show and from the newsletter. So that's why I do it, simply to get other work down the line. I've got a great interview today after the break with Jessica Kizarek, and she's the CEO of the company Badass Business Women. And Badass is just the tip of the iceberg. This Dynamo's authored six books. She's been profiled on CNN's Young People at Rock. She takes on really daunting challenges and nearly always wins. Now, I'll be back with Jessica after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show from Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is a segment where we talk to people who really make a difference in our society and make a difference to business. And we find out just what it is that makes them tick now, as you know, if you've listened to this program, I've got a penchant for ballsy women, women who push the boundaries <laughs> to make sure that women get recognized, mm. women get acknowledged and get the opportunity to break through, which is in what is still, unfortunately, a man's world still. Now, we, we've spoken to handicapped entrepreneur Janice Loveland, who wrote Looking Down at the Glass Ceiling some 20 years ago. We spoke to the wonderful Dana Steele, the first lady of rock radio, who's a very successful woman. And today's guest is the same caliber. Jessica is the CEO of the company Badass Business Women. I love that name, Badass Women. Business women sounds yeah. great. <laughs> we'll talk more about badass, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. This dynamo has offered, is authored six books, been profiled on CNN's Young People at Rock. She takes on the most daunting challenges and always wins. With a father, Bill, she's made an extraordinary contribution in 62 countries to NGOs such as 
the Special Olympics, Lions Club, one laptop per child, and many more. And she just told me a couple of minutes ago that she was um, grew up on an Indian reservation and she's sitting out there in the middle of northern Wisconsin as we speak. Now, I wish I had time to list all of Jessica's achievements. <laughs> her purpose is to incite entrepreneurial women to take life by the horns, embrace their inner badass and kick the hell out of this world. I added that last bit. They were my words, not Hello. yours. Jessica, <laughs> welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, thank you, Bob, for having me. So, so how are you? Oh, I'm great, and I loved your intro, and there's one piece that I would just love to jump right in and address, because you, you, know, you, you listed off all my accomplishments, and then you followed it with, and she's always successful, and, and that, in fact, is not true. I think more than, more than most people I know, I'm willing to fail, yeah. and it's, it's funny, I just went through this big, I um, gave a speech about eight months ago. And the speech was about going all in, like taking the biggest risk you could. And yep. and I had saved up last year a hundred thousand dollars to that I had in the cash reserves for my business. Yeah. And I decided to take that entire amount and invest it in, in my business. And there was a, a bunch of things that I thought were gonna happen as a result. And the things that I thought were going to happen, and this is sort of like this upward trajectory that I was headed on, it just like all of a sudden collapsed within me, and I misjudged a couple things, and it's like I have gone straight down ever since then, and it's like that hundred thousand dollars just boom disappeared, yeah. And now it's now it's like I'm I'm having to reorientate myself, and and I think one of the things that makes a woman a badass in business is her willingness to take risks, and then. And then, and then deal with either her success or her failure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think we grow through our uh, through our failures, don't we? We don't really learn much from successes because we sort of take them for granted. But when we uh, fall on our ass, we um, we learn lessons pretty quickly. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, you do, and you have to you have to really evaluate what's working and what's not working, and be ruthless about cutting things out and reevaluating and. And I'm actually in the middle of this video series right now about simplification yeah. and, 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 and strategically simplifying your tasks and your goals and your activities and your relationships to focus on what's going to make you the most money because that's why we're in business. We want to sure. be business if, if we were not to make money. Yeah, that's right. Now, so how did um, badassbusinesswomen.org come about? How did, what started that? I looked at the the women around me and the challenges that we were facing, and, and I think it's interesting because most of the role models that we have in business as women are women who have already made it. You know, they've yep. been super successful, and they're millionaires times 20, and we all look up to them because they're going to teach us something about having been a success. Right. And what I decided to do was I decided to, it was, it's almost like I'm fighting on the front lines to build a business and, and do all this stuff. And I thought, why not just start being public about the challenges that I faced and, and start attracting other women that were, that were wanted to grow and that were thirsty and that were hungry and that, 
and that wanted a, a, a place to sort of be validated for all the things that they were doing to make their business work. Yeah. Of course, it's not only just it's not only just women, is it? I think we all. I mean, I, on this program, I don't interview people like Jack Welsh and people like that, despite the success they've been. You read one of their books, and I'm not sure that it's much help to the little guy who's out there trying to build a business. I mean, if you're running GE, sure, all those things are great. But if you're a small guy trying to work out what to do next and trying to push the boundaries and and raise enough money to keep afloat, a lot of it just simply doesn't apply, does it? You need real um, role models, don't you? Yeah, I think so. And I think that the energy of <clears throat> being willing to put it all in and and being willing to, to talk about not only... Because in business, it's like failure is so discouraged, I, I think, in a lot of ways. And it's like we're supposed... To, we can talk about our successes, but when we're struggling, we have to keep that really quiet. Um, and so nobody knows that we're not as successful as we think we should be. And, and I think all of that's really amusing. Um, that's and I like, think that... Isn't it, like, isn't it like that in everything? I mean, when was the last time you went and saw somebody give a speech saying, hey, my great claim to fame is I came last in the Olympics? I mean, <laughs> you don't hear it too often, do you? <laughs> well, you, even in sports, I think that we, while we celebrate the victors, we also celebrate the fight. And yeah. we celebrate both parties going at it head-to-head, giving it their heart, giving it their all. And then we see the, you know, I, I'm from Miami, so we just saw the Miami Heat win the championships. And we saw Oklahoma lose, and we saw the tears in their eyes, and we admired them for their battle. And then we celebrated because, we're you know, we've got the winning team. Sure. And, and I love I love how badass business women has really been. Um, I've taken my own advice because one of the things I teach uh, women, and, and plus my I have uh, about ten percent of my readership is men, and I love the men who read my blog because they're so encouraging. And a lot of them, one of them, um, sent me an email one time and said the reason that I love your blog so much is because my mother was a single mother, and she raised three kids and she fought tooth and nail inside of her own business to make it successful enough to take care of each one of us and put us through school and that fight and 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 that makes me want to support all of your women out there that you're supporting so let me know what i can do to help you that's great that on this program we're always encouraging entrepreneurs whether you're starting a tech company, whether you're opening a local dry cleaner, it doesn't matter. What percentage of entrepreneurs these days are women? Is it increasing dramatically? It is increasing. I don't know the exact statistics, but one of the statistics that I think is really interesting is, did you know that 90% of women-owned businesses um, make less than $50,000 a year? Wow. Wow. What, is that because they're the wrong businesses or is it because what, – what's the reason for that? Because women often start businesses and I think there's an interesting dynamic too. I, when you look at socially how men are bred versus how women are bred, the women have only been in the workforce for the last 50 years. Yeah. So there's there, – while men have been in the workforce – for thousands of years. So there's something that's bred in them socially 
I mean, it's almost in men's veins to compete, to ask for what they want, to go out there, to be have thicker skin, to be more of a warrior when it comes to fighting for what they want in in business. Yeah, and, a lot of a lot of that. Have, a lot of that, of course, is called misguided ego. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yes, 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 and and just like willingness to run their head into a wall, right? Yeah. And I think women are a little bit they're more cautious. That we're bred to be protectors. Like we protect each other, we protect our children, we protect. So we're more about holding the status quo. And women oftentimes go into business thinking, okay, I don't want a job, but I just want a small business so it doesn't get too out of control. So I can, you know, have a small business where I don't need employees and all that overhead and all that stuff. And then they get tied into, when you've got a business that's making less than $50,000 a year, how much are you taking home personally? Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's one of the things I want to do too, Bob, is, in, is encourage women when they're going out to be entrepreneurs or th- even thinking about being an entrepreneur. You've got to think about how are you going to get a business that's going to make six figures yeah. immediately, you know, right, like right away. I saw two figures came to me today. Um, I was watching CNN. One is that there's only about 10% of women on American boards. And the other thing that I saw was interesting that only 21% of all business stories on television have anything to do with women. So that's pretty, that's pretty poor, isn't it, 21%, when you make up 51% of the population and, um, and are out there are pushing the boundaries these days. Why do you think that the media, well, corporate boards and the media, both um, Ignore, not ignore is not probably the right word, but but both um, don't give women entrepreneurs and women in business more um, more coverage and more credence. I think it's because men are better at promoting themselves. Quite simply, they're better at promoting themselves. They're better at listing off their accomplishments. They're better at sort of like puffing out their chest and being attractive to media. Is one is one reason, um, and and then also there are less success stories when it comes to women, um, particularly inside of their earnings, because businesses are often judged based on their earnings. And it's like, oh, well, if you have an IPO and make, you know, $100 million, then that's newsworthy. But if you manage to get your business from $49,000 a year (laughs) to $79,000 a year, that's not very newsworthy. Yeah, fair enough. And so there's a there's there's a there's a, there's a tendency to um, um, to 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 feature these big these big financial successes and people that are willing to promote themselves really heavily in the media. So that comes down to building your personal brand, right? Which is my specialty and my favorite conversation. Oh, good. <laughs> Go for it. Well, I, in fact, I'm so passionate about about personal branding and, and, and teaching people how to turn themselves into a brand yeah. uh, that I recently founded. I don't even know if you know about this, but I recently founded the Personal Branding Institute. No, I didn't know. Yeah, with, with one of my partners, um, Michelle Villalobos, and she and I have created curriculum. We have a monthly program that's, you know, it's $47 a month. People get phone calls. They really get engaged in this in this community, and then we have also graduate work. We have a program. Oh, you're going to love this in your readers, your listeners. We have a program that we created called Make Them Beg. 
And if you go to make makethembeg.com, you can sign up for a free video series that we give. But the, the theory and the philosophy behind Make Them Beg is when you become a character, when you become a personality, and you and you um, and you start expressing yourself and being vocal and having something to say and having something different, like being different from everyone else that's out there. When you when sure. you take the time to create that character, which I'm sure you've done um, to attain the level of success that you've had, you start magnetizing people and drawing them into you. So rather than being out there and begging, begging, begging for business. You reverse the entire cycle, and you have people start begging for you. Yeah, that's that, that's critical when you're in sales, or when you, you know, if you're a small business and you're out there looking for money, it's really critical to change that frame from they're the people in control to you're the person in control. And that's that's the very first thing people should do when they go into a meeting, and it's something that people are very very poor at. Um, so what's the first step when you want to build your personal brand? Mm. Uh, the first step is, is introspection, <clears throat> which is hard for a lot of people because they, they don't want to take the time. I, I give this example in one of my recent videos. is like the, the arrow that flies straight. Well, the, in order to get an arrow that flies straight through the air and with like piercing clarity and insight, in trajectory, like the arrow knows where it's going, you yep. have to pull back the bow. Right. And people are, business owners particularly, are so caught up in the day-to-day dramas and, you know, the, the fighting to keep your head a, above water that they rarely invest in, in thinking about what makes them different. You've got to really think about what makes you different from everybody else out there. Uh, and that would be pro- probably my number one thing is stepping back to think about what makes you different from all of your competitors. And then, and then also what niche, what target audience do you want to attract? When I started Badass Business Women, I knew that I wanted to be surrounded by women who were vocal, who were edgy, who were ambitious, who were proud of themselves. And so I built an entire brand, an entire personality and character around wanting to serve that niche. Yeah. So is your personal brand reality or is it a a Howard Stern who's who's something totally different on camera than he is off? In the the age of social media... I think authenticity and transparency is really important. So who you're being, whatever character that is, it has to be aligned with who you are naturally as a human being. Because otherwise people smell it. They're like, who is this person that's trying to pretend that they're someone different? This doesn't make sense. And and it's very subliminal and subconscious. But as humans, evolutionarily speaking, we're biologically programmed to sniff out suspicious situations. Yeah, and if, and they, so, if you're giving a speech well, for an hour and they sniff you out in the first three minutes, the next 57 well, minutes are pretty miserable, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's miserable for, for everybody. Yeah, so right. On one, on one hand, it's real. But on the other hand, it's very carefully crafted. Because my, my persona, um, the people call me the chief. I'm the chief badass. Right. And I'll tell you what, I, I've spent years and years creating that character. Right. Years and years thinking about what I have to say, 
who I want to say it to, how do I want them, what emotions do I want to evoke in them? Who do I have to be to bring out the best in others? Now, one of the things that I love about reading your profile is how you've balanced your life between enterprises for profit and sharing oh, yeah. your the enormous amount of time and your own money with fantastic causes. You call it people helping people. Why is that so important to you? What gives you that drive? Hmm. I just really love, I really love telling stories. I'm a, I'm a storyteller by nature. I think that's probably, if, you were, if I were to boil it down to one thing that I love doing, it's storytelling. And most, I tell stories through writing. Most women are good ways. at telling stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that's a, that's also a, a skill to be developed. And so what what I saw, what I saw was that there are I have this talent to tell stories, and particularly over video, we have an extensive skill set. Thirteen years of, of telling stories through video, and and I looked at how could I give back, and it's it's not like I'm in a position to write checks for a quarter million dollars to nonprofits, which I would love to do. I would love to just be able to give, give, give. And and I and what I've done instead is I've given of my time. And so yeah. we, we we've traded in frequent flyer miles and dad, especially the the two of us, it's a, a shared family mission. We donate our time to these nonprofit organizations. We donate all the pre production the production, we fly anywhere in the world for them, we donate all the on-site expenses, basically everything it takes to shoot the videos. And then they they pay um, extremely reduced rates just for the editing process so we know they're invested. But yeah. for us, we, we work with about five nonprofits every year to help them capture their story on video because we believe that the world is a better place when nonprofits thrive. Yes, I agree. And we believe... We believe that video, digital video, is by far the most um, emotionally compelling medium. Yep. And the nonprofits that have amazing videos are able to raise funds, they're able to raise support, they're able to get people on board, show them the real story, and it's just incredible. Like one of our nonprofits, we um, they spent fifteen thousand dollars on the on the on the editing costs just to edit their film. We did all the donation. Yeah. And they scheduled, they scheduled a fundraiser around the release of the video. In one night, they made $251,000. Wow, that's fantastic. And it was just like, oh, that's what we're in this for. Yeah. Well, I think that's sensational. You, you might describe yourself as a badass, but I reckon you are a really good ass. It's been a privilege to talk to you. I've enjoyed it. If there's mm-hmm. anything I can do to help you along the way with any of the things that you're doing, please, you know, drop me an email and let me know. Now, if oh, I love it. Great. If you're listening to this program and you want to learn more about Jessica, go to www.badassbusinesswomen.com. Org, and don't forget, makethembeg.com. The first thing I do when I get off um, this call is to look that up, makethembeg.com. And I'll be back mm-hmm. with a segment where I answer some emails in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you. 
Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Strike Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, where entertainment meets technology. Now, being successful in your job, getting noticed and advancing up the corporate ladder, it's not an easy task. And it can often be extremely frustrating if you're really ambitious. And there's more than enough advice out there about what you should do when you land a job and you want to jumpstart a successful career. You know, you've got to do things like always show up on time, do what you say you do, always be curious, ask questions. They're all good tips, and there's a lot more. But what's on the list of things you definitely should not do? Now, Kate Kustenbaum, who is a seasoned HR director, defines six things that you should never, ever do while on the job. The first thing is you should never hold a grudge. Now, if someone's wronged you and you hold a grudge towards them, you tend to avoid them, which then makes you less productive. Less productive means you get less done, you don't get noticed by your boss, and sooner or later it shows and you are likely to be out on your ass. So deal with your issue face-to-face. Put personal feelings aside and focus on the work. Now, you have to be willing to work with everyone, no matter who they are, whether you like them or not. People want to work with a team player. So you've got to avoid the problem. That just shows a lack of maturity and it shows that you have difficulty handling challenging situations. And we all know that business is full of challenging situations, so never, ever hold a grudge. The second thing you should never do is avoid your boss. If you're inclined to be open and honest with your peers but not with your boss, that's a big mistake. Open and honest communication with your manager is absolutely vital. Now, if you have an issue and you don't bring it up right away, then it gets more and more and more difficult to bring it up. And when you do, they want to know why you didn't bring it up at the time. You know, you've got to use your manager for what they're there for, which is to help you navigate problems and guide you through to the correct answer. So... Just have open, transparent dialogue, not only with your boss, but with your peers as well, and you'll stay out of trouble. Thirdly, and this one's pretty obvious, although maybe it's not so obvious, don't speak to your co-workers about drugs. 
Um, you often see on Facebook lots of references. People read those. People see them. HR departments search them. So don't let feelings of closeness blur the, blur the professional boundaries that must always be present when working with managers, co-workers and clients. It really doesn't matter who the co-worker is or how far down the totem pole they are. Don't get drunk with them. Don't abuse drugs with them. And don't abuse the situation because you're going to find the truth will come out and your career and your work relationship will go down the toilet. The fourth thing you should never do is say, you're wrong. There's never an appropriate time to tell a manager, co-worker or a customer that they're wrong. As you work through the solution, you can clarify or help them realize where the error is. But if you start the conversation off with an accusation, you simply will not get very far in the discussion and people do not like it. Fifth, never be arrogant or disrespectful to anyone, no matter what level of the totem pole they're on, whether they're at the absolute top or whether at the bottom. Never be arrogant or disrespectful. And, you know, even the most well-intentioned among us can have a bad day and be too short or too egotistical with a co-worker or a boss, but it's in your interest not to do it. No matter how prestigious your background or important your project, you'll build much better relationships if you show respect and humility in your interactions with others. Frankly, if you can't get along with a janitor, you probably won't be able to get along with a CEO either. And they'll pick up on that and you could find yourself in trouble. And the final thing you should never do at your employment is leave your personal career development to your boss. If your boss says, don't worry, I'll look after you, I'll make sure you get all the promotions that come up, I'll... I've got your best interests at heart, well, you'll get nowhere. And if you don't initiate the conversations about what you want to learn or where you want to go in your career, then they probably won't ever happen. Sometimes what not to do is just as important as what to do. So don't make any of these mistakes in your career. There's six simple ones. There's a lot more, but they're simple, but they're very wise. This one's a bit scary. Personalizing Facebook ads based on, it, based on a user's psychological profile, you know, not just their demographic traits like their age and their gender, but their psychological profile can significantly increase the chance they'll click on these ads and buy things. Researchers at multiple universities saw up to a 40% increase in clicks and a 50% increase in purchases when people's ads were tailored to their specific level of introversion or extroversion and openness to new experiences. Now critically, 
these psychological assessments were made using not a robust test or analysis, but a single Facebook-like that each person had made. One study ran Facebook ad campaigns among 3.5 million users, many of them women between 18 and 40, on behalf of select companies. Then they looked at what individual users had liked on the site, which presented a clear window into people's personalities, and then they designed the specific ads based on those likes. So the findings suggest that even minor tweaks can substantially increase the chances that you'll click on an ad and buy the product. For example, a running shoe ad for extroverts might emphasize running with friends, while an introvert's ad would highlight running alone. And just by aligning the type of ad with your personality, they showed you can get a much higher click rate than if you'd misaligned them or you did them just randomly. And Facebook, well, that's just one platform where companies could use psychology to inform their ad experience. It can happen virtually anywhere, any social media site, provided the user has even a minimal digital presence. Now, you can predict personality and psychological traits from pretty much any digital footprint. You can use people's Facebook likes, browsing history. You can do it with people's credit card transactions or their smartphone data. There's really no way of escaping it unless you say no to the whole idea of any digital service. So if you don't want to be manipulated, then don't have a digital footprint. Now, here's a story that I, I find pretty incredible. Um, a guy named Mike Merrill was at a career crossroads. He was 30 years old, made a few bad choices. So he um, decided that he would divide himself into 100,000 shares at a dollar apiece and let people on the internet buy a share in his life. <laughs> Up till now, he sold 10,999.91 shares of himself to 663 investors right across the world. Now, these strangers, shareholders, 90% of whom are com absolutely complete strangers, they get voting power on every decision Merrill makes what to eat, whether or not to get a vasectomy, how much sleep he should get, and even <laughs> who he should date. Over the course of nine years, one share of Mike Merrill has fluctuated in price from 99 cents to $18 based on the demand at the time. And uh, he says it's cool because he gets his own personal void of advisors to help him more decisively wade through life's decisions. What a bloody whack job. He was brought up in Coldfoot, Alaska, a population of 10, and uh, he was homeschooled by his missionary turned state trooper father and his rescue squad mother, 
and after completing his studies, he joined the military. He's a self-proclaimed anti-authoritarian, and he endured a strict regimented lifestyle for three years until he disobeyed the rules and he was kicked out of the army. He says he had a little identity crisis. <laughs> I think he's got a huge identity crisis. He eventually fumbled his way into the software world, working various non-technical odd jobs. Then an idea struck. What if he let other people control his life? So this is the part that gets me. First thing he had to do was determine his worth as a human. So he calculated his worth. And he figured at that time, he figured that the time he had to give in his life for the rest of his life was probably around $100,000. Jeez, I reckon mine's about bloody $50 million. I don't know where he got the $100,000 from. So he decided to divide himself up into 100,000 shares at a dollar each, just like a corporation, and he set out to drum up demand. Then he had his first public offering, and in the first 10 days, 12 people purchased 929 shares, and he retained 99% of himself, and he made his own shares non-voting, and he ceded 100% of decision-making power to his investors. Now, he's got a website, kmikeym.com. You should go to it. It is a hoot. And every decision he wants to make, he puts up there and people vote yes or no. Jeez. Even when he decided to move in with his girlfriend that he'd had for five years, when the shareholders caught wind of the decision, they were furious. They should be making that decision for him. Now, when he wanted to have a vasectomy, the shareholders voted it down, 55 to 45. So in the following period, he's put up all sorts of choices for, vote to, for the vote, become a registered Republican, that was approved, convert to vegetarian, that was approved. It, um, and then a software engineer bought $6,500 worth of shares and um, he had to make the decision on who to date. So he went out and asked the people which dates he should go on. Anyway, this guy is still having all sorts of people decide his life for him. And he says that strangers probably make better investors because they're more independent. I think he's a nut job, is my personal opinion. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, You'll never know how amazing you can be. I hope you have a sensational week and a fantastic Thanksgiving. And you join me again next week when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.